Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, host of Leading Voices with ULI, welcoming you to the latest installment of our podcast series. Today's conversation is with Tom Giddies, who's the president of Plank Industries, which is the holding company of Kevin Plank, the founder and CEO of Under Armour. Tom and Kevin are doing amazing work in Baltimore, which is the headquarters of Under Armour, including the development of a $4.5 billion mixed-use development on the waterfront just outside of downtown called Port Covington. They've also just opened a boutique hotel in the Fells Point neighborhood, which I remember is the home of Bertha's Muscles and John Waters. This was a fascinating conversation where we talked about the impact of real estate development, the meaning of being a great corporate citizen in a company's home community, and what it's like to have come from England and have a new hometown of Baltimore. I hope that you find meaning and value in the conversation. If you've been a listener to the podcast series, you know that in my day job, I'm the founder of Terra Search Partners, a real estate-focused search firm where I get to interview leaders in the real estate business as clients and candidates. On the podcast, I get to do the same, but for the purpose of sharing unique stories of leadership and accomplishments in the different nooks and crannies of the real estate world with both ULI members and other listeners. If you enjoyed today's podcast, I hope that you will subscribe to the series which you can do on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I invite you to review the series on the iTunes store, and we welcome your comments, feedback, and discussion on ULI's Facebook or Twitter, or via email at leadingvoices at uli.org, or to me directly at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. You're the CEO of Plank Industries, which is the holding company of Kevin Plank, the founder and CEO of Under Armour. I don't have any on right now, but I often do. And Under Armour is a Baltimore-based firm, and you're leading a diversified business and family office. But I think the reason we're talking is because your company is developing through Sangamore Development Company, Port Covington, which is a $5.5 billion waterfront development in Baltimore. We're going to want to talk about that, but I want to understand the context within which you're doing real estate, but also the context within which how you got here, who you are. So we'll talk about all that through our conversation this morning. That sounds terrific. So to get started, and maybe this will be obvious from accent, but you're not from Baltimore. Tell us a little bit about the Tom Giddy story. Yeah, I'm afraid, uh, sadly, at least from my wife's perspective, and I know that of others, is the accent is gone. So I, I'm not a Baltimorean. I'm actually a Brit by birth and raising, and I came to the U.S. for college back in uh, 1996, and I've been here since, been in Baltimore uh, since 2002. Like many people, I came to Baltimore for two years, 15 years ago. That's been known to happen in the city. It's a place that grabs you and draws you in, and love being here, love the work that we're doing. So 
The background is uh, I grew up in the UK. I came over on a Moorhead scholarship to UNC Chapel Hill, which was a great experience and a great, uh, I know we're going to talk a little bit about leadership, but that Moorhead Kane program at UNC Chapel Hill is a great uh, first sort of introduction to leadership in adult life that was really important to me and remains so. And then I did four years in Carolina. I went to Seattle for a year between undergrad and grad school, went to Cambridge for grad school in the UK, and then came here to go to Hopkins, which is what brought me to the city as it brings many people to Baltimore. And I just ended up settling in and I've been very, very happy here, live in in the city, work in the city. And as I mentioned, I'm looking out now over the, the harbor, which is a beautiful place and a place that brings a lot of visitors and tourists. And we're doing the best we can to add to the city with the work that we're doing across the, the companies associated with Plank Industries. Wonderful. And gosh, a friend of mine sending their kid to school next year in, I think, Scotland. And we're, we're nervous that maybe she'll stay in Scotland. So when you came over for college, did you expect in your dreams that maybe this would be a long term move or, or no? I don't think I knew at the time. I, I had never been to the U.S. before I came over for school. I came over for my interview for the Moorhead Kane, and that was my first time in the country. So I don't think I knew that it would suck me in the way that it did. But but no, I, I couldn't certainly couldn't have predicted where I, where I am today, I don't think. I'm not sure I could have picked Baltimore off a map in 1996. And I think I probably expected that I would spend a few years here and then go off somewhere else in the world. I'd, I'd always had ambitions to travel and had an interest in, in doing interesting things around the world. But uh I didn't think that I'd necessarily be a U.S. citizen living in Baltimore with a family and two young children. Absolutely. So what brought you to Baltimore or what brought you to Kevin Plank and how did that come together? So after I'd been in Baltimore for probably, I guess, seven years before I even met Kevin, I'd heard of, uh, you know, Under Armour was, was picking up in 2002 when I was here. We were starting to see and hear the name, especially locally, but but nationally as well. They went public in 2005, so it became a lot more prominent and a lot more recognizable around the world. And Kevin was, you know, by then a, a, a very prominent figure in the city. So I knew of him, and then I ultimately met him in, I guess, 08 or maybe early 09. Um, and actually, we first met, believe it or not, on a playground. So we both had little two-year-olds at the time, and they right. were running around the playground together. And, and it was, I think it was Halloween or some occasion special enough that it brought both of us to, to the school uh, around our kids, a Halloween parade or something like that. And we, we introduced each other and, you know, he was, so he obviously knew who I knew who he was at the time and families got to know each other and kids got to, to be friends. And I had a little bit of time with him, but not a lot. He was very busy, obviously, as he is today, 100% focused on Under Armour and, and traveling around the world and building this brand. So didn't have a lot of time with him, but got to know, got to know the family and then had dinner a couple of times. And then he called me one day. I was working at a wealth management firm in town at the time, having uh, navigated through sort of a few different uh, career journeys. And I was working at a terrific firm where I thought I'd spend the rest of my life, had a very happy setup, good work-life balance, and, and you know, sort of had a good future ahead when he called and said, let's have lunch. And we had lunch the next day, and he said, look, you know, this company, Under Armour, is really, I think he just crossed a billion dollars in revenues. He said, we're, you know, we're going at very high speed and not slowing down. I need to focus on the business, but I have an increasingly complex world outside the company. At the time, he, he, the only business he owned was the horse farm, Sagamore Farm, up in Baltimore County, which is this beautiful 535-acre horse farm that used to be owned by the Vanderbilts. And he, that was the one operation he had. But he needed a family office, and he needed someone to help organize his world and his, his growing complexities. And he wanted somebody he knew and trusted who had a background, not just in the wealth management side, but in other pieces like philanthropy and, and business and other areas, government relations, even other other functions he was going to need that he probably couldn't even anticipate at the time. But he knew he, knew he wanted someone with a broad skill set. So I thought about it for 24 hours, knowing the kind of super dynamic guy he is and how fast his world moved and knowing that it would be a big change for the family. 
from what I was doing at the time and, and then said a very enthusiastic yes. And when I started, aside from the farm, there was myself and one bookkeeper. And today the, the entire team is about 165 and growing. And we have all of these various projects that have come online in, in the intervening years and you know, several of which are just really getting up to speed right now. And I've changed the face of my day-to-day life in a big way, and it's been it's been wonderful. I, I frequently say that I have the best job in the world, and you know, no matter what the day throws at me, I'm I'm always going to believe that. And so go go back a little bit because when you were at UNC, you were looking for general business and general leadership, and then you're in wealth management, which is I don't want to use the word narrow, but it's it's a discipline. And then when he gave you the opportunity to think of the family office, how broadly did you look at that and how broadly were you prepared to take it in all these different directions? And then we'll talk about about what those directions are. That's a really interesting question. I think one of the conversations Kevin and I had when he was bringing me on board was that, you know, he said, sometimes you spend your whole life preparing for for something and you don't even know it. And wealth management to me was a discipline that while it is focused, I enjoyed it because of, you know, diverse range of clients and people that you deal with. And I've always enjoyed working with people but prior to that, I had, I had I had done a tremendous number of different things. From you know initially thinking I was going to be an academic and heading towards a, you know I had, I had graduate degrees in history and thought that was the direction I was going, and then pivoting from that into the nonprofit sector. I taught for a while. I helped uh, with fundraising and government relations for nonprofit organizations, both in house and consulting. And then you know sort of by the time I had my first daughter and and really it was time to buckle down and, and sort of choose a direction was when I I made the switch into wealth management. And enjoyed it very much, and found it very, very gratifying. And as I said, I was the youngest. I was the youngest partner in the firm, small firm at the time, growing quickly. Great opportunity ahead, but the the opportunity to come and work for Kevin was something very different. And I think coming in, you know, there's no way I could have visualized where we would be today. But I knew that it would be interesting and diverse because even though job number one was really to create the family office and think about wealth management. At our very first lunch meeting, he was already talking about, you know, thinking about real estate, thinking about the whiskey business that we have now and a few other things, not at the size and scale that we ended up doing it. But he had he had ambitions to do interesting things in Baltimore, but he was very aware that his focus had to remain completely on Under Armour because it was so, so important that as, as you know, founder, chairman and CEO, that he's 100 percent focused on the job there. And let's talk about that for a minute. And the and it is, there is a leadership lesson in it, but it's you touched on it and it's really interesting so he's 100% focused on that, but he maybe shared together you have the entrepreneurial ideas that then you're the CEO of versus he's the CEO of the other business. How does he balance that out and where's his passion lie? And you get 5% of his time, but, you know, half his emotion. I, I don't know. <laughs> I would, I would broaden out the idea that it's him on one side and me on the other. It's really him on one side and then a team on the other. So, you know, he is focused on the Under Armour side. And then on the, on the private side, there's a team of leaders running Sagamore Development Company, Sagamore Spirit, Sagamore Racing, Sagamore Ventures, and, and then our creative group as well. And all of whom are people he's known a long time, knows and trusts, all very bright, capable people who are running their own businesses. And I'm really their, their partner sitting in the center from the family office and investment perspective. But uh, would, it would be an exaggeration, a gross exaggeration to say that, you know, I'm running all of these companies the way he runs Under Armour. I think that, you know, that they're more diversified than that and more separate than that. And, and they're very much in the hands of the president of each of the companies. So while I do have this role helping him make major decisions around these businesses, and while I, I have a big role supporting those guys and, and helping them to be successful, I, I also have the sort of more family office investor kind of role for him. 
But in terms of his time and attention, I, I would say, I think it's a great way that you put it, 5% of his time, but 50% of his emotion. I, I would phrase it as maybe 5% of his time, but you know, a good percentage of his vision. I think what we've been really fortunate to benefit from is the, the incredible vision that he has and the, the dynamic approach to the world that he has that says, we can do it, we can get it done, you know, kind of over-promise and deliver. A lot of the mentality and mindset that helped him create Under Armour, he shared with our team of leaders and empowered us to go and do it in such a way that it would not be a distraction for him and it would not require you know, right. a lot of his time, time and energy. So it's worked really well. It's continuing to work well. You know, I really enjoy sitting in, in the middle of it all. It, it's interesting, the skill set that enables someone to create and then grow a company like that, that's the rabbit hole down which they wind up going. But the essential skill set is coming up with lots of ideas, lots of passion, and then they were able to manage that one. And there's nothing to say that they shouldn't have a holding company that has many businesses because their vision can far exceed that. I know other entrepreneurs, there's a guy in San Francisco, George Marcus, and it's like 10 different businesses. Marcus and Millichap's the main one, but it, the others keep going. And he has people leading those business, but you know, he can't be kept down. No, it's interesting. I think, you, you know, you, you're right. It, it, it's, it's a great skill of a leader to be able to to share that their vision and empower and put people in a position where they can go and, and execute on it in a way, you know, that's always going to be different from the way it would be if that, that sort of found visionary founder themselves was at the helm, but at least is sort of guided and informed by their big picture ideas and also by just their, their sort of the culture that they that they would put in place in their own business. And I think that's something we translated well as a lot of the culture that drives Under Armour has, has moved over a lot of the ways of thinking about, you know, how we, how we get things done has definitely um, because it all centrally comes from Kevin is something that's translated over to the other businesses, which has been great. You've mentioned it, but I'd like to understand a little bit about the breadth of the businesses that you're in that will provide context for digging into real estate. And then the other thing we'll, we'll get to later is kind of what does that all mean within the context of Baltimore, commitment to Baltimore. But tell us about the breadth of these businesses. Sure. So it, it all began with the, the farm, as I mentioned earlier. Sagamore Farm is 530-acre horse farm just north of Baltimore, previously owned by Alfred Vanderbilt. It was in, in the heyday of American horse racing. It was one of the most famous and successful farms with the, you know, the home to Native Dancer and the legendary horses. And Kevin acquired it in 2007 and immediately began a very significant restoration of the property. And it's beautiful. You know, it's, it's, I think there's 18 miles of white four-board fence. And the two two uh, streams that run through and meet at a spring house. There's a house up on the hill that, that we can use for guests, and it's really a, it's an amazing resource. And it's also a fully functioning, active thoroughbred horse farm with with the you know goal of being successful in that industry. So that was the first project that we had outside of Under Armour, and that led to the creation of one of the sec, maybe second in line, which was the Sagamore Spirit Whiskey business, which is owned by the the Plank family, sort of founded by Kevin, and it's a family-owned asset. And that really was taking advantage of the story of Sagamore Farm and the sort of authenticity of the history of rye whiskey in Maryland, which was something that I think going into it, none of us were fully aware of that prior to Prohibition, whiskey, rye whiskey in particular, was was America's drink. And Maryland was kind of the capital in the way that Kentucky is for bourbon today. And it was an industry that was really lost uh, following Prohibition. A lot of the capabilities and a lot of the human capital and all of those things disappeared with Prohibition um, around that industry. Uh-huh. And it, it's really uh, the idea for, for Sagamore Rye was to help sort of resurrect that industry in Maryland and specifically in Baltimore. So that was the second piece. And it, it came out of the farm because the, those two streams I mentioned and the spring house uh, all come from a, a, a natural spring that's the water that bubbles up. You can see it bubbling up through this limestone aquifer. And it, it's 
the perfect water for making whiskey, which was a good thing to discover, as we did a few years ago when we got underway with making our, our Sagamore straight rye whiskey product, which is on the shelves now in, I think, 15 markets nationally and growing. That's been a very exciting piece to get off the ground. And, you know, that company, again, operates somewhat independently. It's a, it's a fully functioning spirit business with its entire team of 40 people and growing. And does it um, fit well into a Manhattan? It's very well into Manhattan and many other kinds of cocktails. There's okay, a, I'm a, on my way. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, get you, we'll get you a bottle. I think you can buy it in San Francisco now. So <laughs> a couple of our smaller operations, the, the Ventures Group and obviously Marcus's Group that I mentioned earlier, really helped to service the other, the other projects, the other businesses. The Venture Group is focused around entrepreneurship, a lot of focus on product, entrepreneurship and manufacturing. And we have a facility called City Garage, which sits in Port Covington. I know we're going to dive deeper into Port Covington. City Garage is a 130,000 square foot former city garage where you know fire trucks and police cars and ambulances would be would be maintained and repaired. And it was uh, it had been empty for years when we acquired it as part of the putting together Port Covington. And we turned that into a manufacturing and process innovation center with a, an entrepreneurship kind of bent to it. And uh, Damien Costa, who runs Sagamore Ventures, is, has has done an amazing job of creating this this center that has three major components, an Under Armour process innovation facility that they lease from us, a, a maker space, which is also now our workforce development center, which we can talk about a little later, yeah. and that area called Main Street, which is a kind of hub for entrepreneurs, some of the businesses we've invested in, some that we haven't, but pretty much all of which make a product and, and which live in this environment where they can feed off of each other and, and get access to uh, Damien and his team and support them in the growth of their businesses. So those are other exciting pieces. And then obviously, as you as you mentioned, the lead off, the biggest project and a, and a big focus for all of us is, is Port Covington and the uh, real estate project that's underway there. But, bef- but before diving into that, the other one is the Sagamore Pendry Hotel, which is, it's a real estate play, but it's separate from Port Covington. It sits in Fells Point, which if, if you know Baltimore at all, is sure it, do. Uh, you know, one of those dark neighborhoods in America, kind of cobblestone streets and uh, old ship captains' homes and row houses. And it's really a, a beautiful uh, neighborhood that attracts a lot of people. And it's a great residential neighbor in its own right. And uh, there was a, a huge old building sitting on a pier, a hundred-year-old building that was in, that had not been, had anything really done with it for probably over a decade, prior to which it had been used mostly as a film and TV set. And we acquired that and working with the Montage Group, we've turned that into the Sagamore Pendry Baltimore Hotel, which is a 128 key boutique hotel that opened about a month ago and is is doing extraordinarily well. Talk about the water taxi, which I'm so interested in because, you know, I'm in San Francisco, we care about ferries. But what how's that water taxi business and how does that fit in? Sure. So this is another project that uh, that Damien has spearheaded, and it's a good fit for him to be out on the water. He was a, uh, formerly before his business career with the Navy SEAL. So we were very comfortable putting it out of the boat, check it out. So the water taxi service has been around a long time in Baltimore, and it's both a commuter and kind of tourist experience. And Kevin, sort of kind of looking out of his window and, and watching the, the these pontoon boats that carry people around the harbor, had an idea that, that you know, firstly, we have transportation challenges in Baltimore and, and, you know, the city and state are working to address them, whether it's through bus or light rail or other kinds of traditional approaches. But he felt that the harbor itself could be a better, a better utilized transportation system. And second thing he felt was that the boats themselves weren't really of Baltimore or of Maryland. So he sort of uh, commissioned Alien to go out and find a, a uh, number one, to acquire the water taxi service, which we did. Number two, to work, find a, a local Baltimore-based boat builder who could create something that was really more of an iconic, authentic Maryland uh, vessel. So what we ended up building was a group in Baltimore City that was able to build this, uh, this help design and build it. And the, the boats are all black and they are shaped like the classic Chesapeake Bay dead rise crab boat. 
and they have one twentieth of the carbon footprint of the prior fleet. They have Wi-Fi. They have places for phone chargers, and they're they're much better kind of for all weather use. And then the other piece we're doing is adding more stops, particularly stops over into neighborhoods that that have not really had access to the the harbor as much before. You know, it's interesting. One of the things you talk about, and it's been a theme through the conversation, but you talk about brand, and then you also talk about authenticity, and thinking about I can't imagine a you know, neighborhood more authentic than Fells Point. It is what it is and it's real. But, uh, and it's interesting, it ties into two different podcasts we've had because we spoke to Janet Marie Smith about the building of Camden Yards and they had to do things in there that were authentic and meaningful to Baltimore. And uh, from, you know, minute details that make the difference, that make it real. And then also just kind of funny in a different podcast, not yet released, uh, the person I was interviewing got her start in real estate on a Vaporetto in Venice, swear to God. <laughs> so the thought of water taxi, and you can't think about Venice without thinking about that method of transportation. That's how you wind up getting around. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. I, you know, In the early conversations, we talked about whether for the water taxi or for the hotel, should should boats be kind of Venice-inspired? And very quickly, we, we flipped back to the fact that that in Baltimore, authenticity and history are really important. You know, we're, we're a city that doesn't right. get credit for history, I think, in the way you look at cities like Boston that have done a, a great job of telling the story of, of their role in, in the birth of this country. And I think Baltimore with the, the War of 1812 and then the writing of the Star-Spangled Banner and some of the other uh, major moments that have, that have happened here in American history maybe doesn't get quite as much credit as, as it should. So we always tie back to, you know, trying to be off Maryland and off Baltimore to, to, in all that we do. You have to add crabs, mussels, orioles, and and maybe the wire into that authenticity. They're all different, though. They're all very different, for sure. Crabs being probably the most important. So let's come back to that, maybe, if we we have some time. But but talk about Port Covington. Talk about that project and what the vision is. The genesis of Port Covington came with, first, Kevin having an interest in in having a big economic impact in the city and feeling that he was positioned to do that, not just by having Under Armour grow here, but in things that he could do personally. And it was also motivated in part by, as Under Armour was looking to expand its operations here in Baltimore, it's very important to Kevin and the team here that they that they try to grow their headquarters function here in the city and then maybe add on some other experiences around retail and, and other things that, that could be very positive. So when, you know, shortly after I started, we made an initial attempt to, to make some acquisitions adjacent to Under Armour's existing headquarters, which is on the harbor, sort of looking into the inner harbor. And then those were really unsuccessful due to a variety of factors. The land area was really too small. It wasn't really zoned the right way. There were other kind of limitations that your audience would be very, very familiar with. And then that really led us to sort of look, go look around Fort McHenry to the south side of this peninsula and at Port Covington, which is a 260-acre area of sort of post-industrial land with very little going on, very little density. At the time, there was a a, Sam, a, a closed Sam's Club. There was a, an open Walmart that we understood was not necessarily performing very well. Baltimore Sun's printing press, which is very large, but is surrounded by huge areas of open land. And then a, a business called Lock Insulators. There was a small restaurant, which we now own, called Nick's Fish House, which is a great, speaking of crabs, you know, next time you're in Baltimore, you got to go do crabs at Nick's Fish House. It's a great little waterfront spot that's doing very well. And then the old city garage that I referenced earlier, which at the time was uh, was sort of falling down and completely disused. And a few couple other businesses, but not not much else. And one of the things that, you know, as we started with acquisitions at Port Covington, one of the things that, that Kevin was very personally gratified by was the fact that we were not going to run into issues of displacement of people, you know, who'd lived in their homes a long time, you know, even even voluntarily being bought out. Sometimes, you, you know, you're concerned right. about what that does 
the neighborhood. And, you know, I like to say the nighttime population of Fort Covington is, is about 20 and 17 of them are cats. So there was really nothing to, to be concerned about as far as putting people out of, you know, the, the transforming people's communities in a way that would negatively impact them. So, excuse me, the first piece came up for auction in 2012. It's a five-acre site that now houses the Sagamore Spirit Distillery. But at the time, it was just vacant. And we, we were able to acquire that at auction. And it was uh, uh, Mark Weller, who's now the president of the Sagamore Development Company, co-founder and president of the company, what, uh, went out and bought at the auction for us. And at the time, he had no visible association with us. So nobody actually knew that it was that, that Kevin was involved, which was very helpful from uh, you know managing the, uh, the, the acquisition perspective. So from there, we went on to piece together really a very large assemblage of land uh, with two and a half miles of waterfront, over 200 acres of of land, which is, you know, we've now gone through a lengthy process to get it uh, entitled uh, master planned with matter of right zoning and all of the things we need to get done to, to have a development ready. And so we worked with Under Armour, you know, Under Armour at the time was looking for how they could expand their headquarters here in the city. So we worked with them to identify the best roughly 50 acres of land on that site that could work for them for a future campus that they could build on their own balance sheet, uh, you know, on their own schedule as made sense for the company. And we sold it back to them at our cost, actually a little bit of a loss. Um, you know, it was a related party transaction, so we're always extremely transparent about that, you know, board process and all the things you do to get that done and make sure that we didn't didn't have any profit on the land. We were we were able to sort of hand deliver to them this this development ready site uh, for their campus to get underway. And they are on their own timeline for how they how they built that. The, the old Sam's Club that I mentioned was a was a great resource for them because they were able to immediately adaptively reuse that and turn it into additional headquarters office for the company. And I think I got the sense from just being around the company a little bit that, that folks initially were concerned were concerned they might be sent uh, to that new facility. And when they saw what it looked like, they were excited and, and lining up to be sent over there because it looks just like the existing headquarters. It's, it's beautifully, it was a terrific adaptive reuse. It looks beautiful and they have their own gym and their own cafeteria and those kinds of facilities. So great place for, for, for people uh -huh. to work. So that was, a, that was sort of an immediate shortcut, which a new build would have been a lot more challenging and a lot more a lot less cost efficient. So they have that that corner of the site, and then the rest will be is master planned and and designed and and, and entitled and ready to go to be potentially as much as a 14 million square foot mixed use development. So 200 plus acres and 14 million square feet, obviously by you know in, in almost any city, is a very very significant opportunity you know for the city and and could, could have really huge economic impact over a period of time because the way this is planned out and the way this is designed is this would be a build over, you know, certainly 10, 15, possibly 20 plus years to get this entire thing done. A big, bold vision that will require uh, a huge amount of outside investment, billions of dollars in outside private investment into the city, which is something we're excited about. And we're also excited about the impact it will have, not just from kind of an economic impact and tax-based perspective, but on those other communities that I mentioned that are that are adjacent and have always been a little bit separated from the city. We think this will really help in a way, kind of reattach South Baltimore into the rest of the city and, and create opportunity from a jobs perspective, from, a, from an entrepreneurship perspective that, that we think is missing in, uh, in that corner of our city right now. So. You did achieve a pretty significant support from the city for this, financial support or for the infrastructure. Talk about that and kind of how to get through the politics. It's always painful, but how, how, how did that come together? 
So, you know, we were talking at the beginning about things I never expected necessarily to be doing in my life. I, I always thought that I might get involved in politics at some point, but I thought it would look very different from dealing with the, the politics of uh, real estate in a municipality. So, so Baltimore does not have a you know vast resources in terms of a general fund to to be able to say to uh, you know someone willing to make a very large private investment to be able to say simply we will we'll dip into the general fund and 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 build the infrastructure for you, which obviously is what cities do is they they build infrastructure and make it possible for for private development then to happen. So, you know, given challenges that, that Baltimore City has around school funding and other kinds of issues, you know, nor would we, even if the money was available, we would not want to, to divert it from other uses. So what we did instead was to, to work with the city to structure a tip for tax increment financing, which, again, many of your audience will be familiar with, but some may not. Uh, so, uh, you know, TIF essentially is a, it's a financing tool. It's a bond that is issued by the municipality or by some associated vehicle. Which, which is backed by the new incremental uh, taxes coming off of the project itself, not by anybody else in the city. So it's a win-win kind of tool in that it does not pull from other taxpayers. It does not pull from other businesses. It's guaranteed and backed and funded by the project itself and is not a general obligation of the city. So, you know, on immediate, uh, you know, I think your audience will quickly say that's a, that's a, an, a, a tool that makes sense. And, you know, uh, the, the, the property owners are assessed a special tax. If there's not enough tax increment to fund the debt service, it all works well. It's a win-win for the city. We were doing this in the middle of an election year, you know, a mayoral election with a number of city council seats turning over. And against the backdrop of, of what we all know is kind of one of the craziest presidential elections we've we've experienced in a long time. So it made for a an environment. And, and you know, and also it's worth noting, obviously, not we were not far removed either from the Freddie Gray tragedy here in Baltimore, which sparked, you know, a great deal of, of, of sort of immediate uh, unrest and then in very important ongoing conversations about equity in the city and about opportunity in right. the city. So it made for a complicated political backdrop. And I would say that we were fortunate in that we had, we did a huge amount of outreach across the city and we had tremendous support from the faith community, from the immediate South Baltimore neighborhoods, the SB6 neighborhoods that I mentioned, and their community organizations, which were, which, which worked together extremely well to kind of come to us with a proposal on how we could partner and then with obviously business, civic, political, all kinds of other leaders were tremendously supportive from from a very early on. Having said that, again, it was an election. And, you know, if, I think if I were running fourth or fifth in a city council race or a race for mayor in Baltimore and just trying to get my name in the paper, you obviously, uh, unfortunately, people have a tendency to to try to speak negatively about the biggest things that are going on at the time. So we did experience some of that. And we had to work very hard on both strategic communications, community engagement. Our community partners did, did a lot of the work for us of telling the story of how, number one, that the, the TIF itself was not a negative for taxpayers in order to depend on other taxpayers, and number two, that this project was going to be a great economic win for the city, as well as a great social win for the city. And we worked hard to structure a community benefits agreement that was very substantial, you know, in large part thanks to Kevin being being a philanthropist in the city already and, and having plans and a willingness to, to do a lot of terrific things for the community. Also, we created a unique partnership with those those neighboring communities, which really is more of a partnership than, than a sort of uh, funder kind of relationship. And that's been, that was really special to go through and, and, and to, to help to build. And we're looking forward to getting underway with them right now. And there's stories throughout American history of major corporate entity or a person behind major corporate entity in a smaller town where you might be one of three, four major corporations, just diving in and, and making it a great place to live and, and attacking civic life there. Yeah, you know, one thing Kevin says a lot is that, you know, cities don't need any particular company and companies shouldn't hold cities hostage in the belief that they do. But, you know, companies that have 
good intentions and, and in our case, kind of on the, the private company side that have good flexibility and, a, and a, a mandate really to invest in the city really can be helpful and can help to move the needle. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of it comes down to partnerships. We like to partner with other corporations, other uh, corporate citizens around Baltimore to work together on projects and initiatives that make sense and where, the, you know, the working together will be greater than any of us working alone. And then we like to engage with the, the nonprofit community as well. In fact, this, just this morning, I started my day in West Baltimore meeting with a group of uh, four nonprofits that have banded together to create a uh, actually a physical space where they work and collaborate. And they're doing some of the most interesting and compelling work across a few different sectors of, of community needs. Um, it's a, a group called the, the Center's called Touchpoint. There are uh, four groups in there doing terrific work from working with, with kids in the city schools all the way to urban families at the Center for Urban Families and, and everything in between and finding ways to deploy resources into these neighborhoods. And, you know, one thing one of the guys said is those who are closest to the problems are closest to the solutions. And so we want to work with people who are who are embedded in these communities and understand the needs so that, you know, when we, when we help, whether it's with our, our human capital, our resources, or, or being financially supportive, that we're really moving the needle and, and really doing what's best for, for those who are most in need in Baltimore. It's interesting. I keep quoting the other podcast, but now that we're into the series for six months, it's fascinating. But one of the conversations was with a guy named Steve Leeper, who runs the major development, nonprofit development company in Cincinnati. And indeed, it was the civic leader, the corporate leaders and the mayor who got together and said, we have to save this part of our city or it will bring down, bring down downtown. And they got together and just forced the redevelopment of both downtown and adjacent neighborhood over the Rhine. And it takes corporate leadership really, really matters. It does. I think, you know, someone we look to a lot as, as an, a great example is Dan Gilbert in Detroit. It was fame admitted to investing in, in that city across everything that he does. And, you know, he part, I know he partners closely with a mayor he likes and respects, and, and those relationships are really important. We have a new mayor who's been been terrific with us. We have a governor who's been extremely supportive. And, you know, if, if, if you're empowered to do good things and if you work with great partners across all different sectors, you know, we have you know, a population of, I think, around 600,000. We only have 80,000 kids in the schools. These are, a lot of these issues we really ought to be able to significantly improve if we if we pull together and that's that's important to us partnership is really important to us and knowing that you know we're only one we're in one corner of the city doing one project and doing doing the best work that we can but when we when we coordinate with others we can really make a difference and a question on that corner of the city when i lived in dc and you know we used to go up to baltimore particularly for ball games we talked about dc baltimore converging and particularly that side of the city and when the Camden Yards moved from Memorial Stadium. It was closer to D.C. How much, and, and you've been talking exclusively about Baltimore, but how much does Port Covington allow an interface towards the D.C. area and towards employment trends happening from that? Really good question. It's something we're, we're actively engaged with. In fact, we, we recently joined a group called the Greater Washington Partnership, which has as its mission sort of looking at policy initiatives around a few core areas in infrastructure and workforce in particular that can take advantage of the corridor that is kind of Baltimore through D.C. to Richmond. And for us, we, we have some interests in Washington, D.C. We spend a little bit of time there, and it's, it, it is important to us that we be connected. We, the, the, the train from Baltimore to D.C. is, is a, a quick and easy way to go. It's something I do a lot. But you're right about the physical location of Port Covington, one of its other great competitive advantages, I think, on a sort of, as, a, as a project on a national scale is that proximity to D.C., because being on the southwest corner of the city and sitting right on 95, in fact, I think a good, a good portion of our real estate team came from D.C. because there's such a robust real estate industry there, and many of them still commute up 
you know, that can take them 35, 40 minutes, but they're coming from the right corner of Washington. So I think there will be a trend towards hopefully Baltimore taking more advantage of its proximity to D.C. and, and vice versa. And it really is a, a strategic advantage this city has. There are many cities in America that would trade locations with Baltimore to be number one sitting on an East Coast Harbor and number two to be that close to the capital. You and Kevin are earlier in your careers, halfway through your careers. So you, you have a lot ahead of you here. This project may take 20 or 30 years, but that's just this project. What's next? What's the, you know, what, what keeps happening in, in your business world here? Well, to begin with, I think we, we have a huge amount to deal with already, or certainly on the on our side. You know, as I mentioned before, Kevin, I think, you're right, he's very young, been incredibly successful already. He's going to remain focused, you know, for the foreseeable future on on driving the, the brand of Under Armour and running that company and, and, and building it into, you know, what he knows it can be on a global scale. I think on the plank industry side, our focus right now, um, you know, especially Sagamore Development Company is very focused on getting all of these various new assets online and functioning. We've, we've The team's grown significantly. We now have this hotel open, obviously, the distillery opened up. Uh, those operations need to be up and running. And then, you know, from a sort of from my perspective is, is figuring out how we manage them over time and how closely we we remain sort of coordinated as one business versus decentralizing a little bit and letting these. One, that's one thing Dan Gilbert has done well, I think, is he's he's created a new business sort of out of his central his central company and then spun it off and, and let it stand on its own two feet. And that's a model that I think we're looking at to see how that goes forward. And, you know, just making sure that everything's successful. We have a, we have a lot going on. We want to make sure we add it down to the core things that are most important to us and that we want to remain focused on and make sure that they they uh, perform at the highest level. Port Covington, I, you know, we'll see how how much of, of that our, our partners are, are focused on and how much that takes our team's time. Sagamore Development, I think, will always be sitting in the middle of that and and very engaged with it. But as far as what's next, I'm hoping, you know, maybe time to catch breath and, uh, and make sure we implement everything that we've done so far. But Kevin is an extremely dynamic guy, and I'm sure he'll have more ideas in the future. And then, you know, our teams, too, as, as our teams, as they as they get these projects up and running, I have no, no doubt they will generate more opportunities and more ideas. And hopefully we continue to be a major catalyst for a positive change in Baltimore. And last question. So are you going to send your kids to when, when they get to college, are they going to go to England or here in the States? And is Baltimore the forever home? Well, my, my kids are 10 and six year old girls. And so I'm in that, that dad stage where the, you know, the idea of them, uh, of leaving is, is completely impossible. So I actually had a conversation with them recently where I said that one of the 10 year old asked about college. And I said, look, you know, I'm going to be supportive. You can go wherever you like, completely wide open. You, you can go to Hopkins or Loyola. I don't mind. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can't even imagine them, them taking off. But no, I think I would imagine, you know, we'll be in Baltimore for, for a very long time and, you know, hopefully continuing to make a difference here. And then we'll see we'll see where they end up. But hopefully both of the Moorhead King scholars at Chapel Hill. That would be fine by me. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Leading Voices with ULI podcast hosted by the Urban Land Institute. To learn more about ULI's leadership network or to join ULI as a member, please visit uli.org.